Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Neuroscience Podcast Series, Rett Syndrome Today and Tomorrow. I'm your host, Dr. David Lieberman. I'm an instructor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Comprehensive Rett Syndrome Clinic at Boston Children's Hospital. With me today to discuss current treatment and management options for Rett Syndrome is Dr. Shannon Standridge, who is director of the Benaya Rett Syndrome and Related Spectrum Disorders Clinic at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Ohio. Our learning objective for this podcast is to recommend optimal treatment options for supportive care in Rett Syndrome. Before we begin, I have a quick housekeeping note. This episode is accredited for 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit, ACPE contact hours, ANCC contact hours, and AAPA contact hours. After listening to this podcast, click on the link in the show notes to take the post-test and earn your CE, CME credits. All right, Dr. Standridge, let's get started. We're going to be talking about management of Rett syndrome. As we know, because it's a genetic disorder and primarily affecting the nervous system, there's still involvement of many organ systems. And so there's lots of management options for Rett syndrome that we take in different clinics. So we're going to take a closer look at some of the more common symptoms and their management options. For those in the audience, keep in mind that this podcast is not encompassing the full scope of Rett syndrome symptoms, but we'll start out with, in your mind, what are the most common manifestations of Rett syndrome in practice? Thanks, David. I'm really happy to be talking with you and to make sure that we can share our knowledge and our experience with those who are likely to be taking care of individuals with Rett syndrome. Like you just said, it's really important to keep in mind that multiple organ systems are involved with dysfunction in our patients. And the severity and the frequency often evolves over time. So we are often trying to find treatments and medical options for different system involvement at a younger age compared to an adolescent compared to an adult. Keep in mind that much of what we discussed today may vary in the individuals you're talking to and managing just based on their age, but also the range of severity just varies across our individuals. So it is based on their individual needs. So we have to keep that in mind as well. We often consider treatment from a head down approach, just like we do our neurology exam. So that's how we're going to approach it today in our conversation. I find that, and I think, David, you would probably consider doing the same thing, and I think most of experts in the field try to find medications that are effective for more than one symptom. Anytime that we can use a medication to treat more than one symptom, that's a win for the families, a win for the individual with Rett syndrome, because it means less medicine, less possible side effects. So I'll try to reference that consideration or approach as much as I can today. So with that in mind, I would like to first talk about epilepsy since we're talking about head down approach. So epilepsy is a symptom that I know that we all experience in managing these patients. And the number of our patients that experience that really is quite high. Thankfully, not all individuals with Rett syndrome have refractory epilepsy. So there is a lot of opportunity for local neurologists and NPs to consider managing the seizures in their offices. And I'm hopeful that you could do that. So some of those that we consider are the same medications that you consider for patients with epilepsy without Rett syndrome. 
Unfortunately, if we had one great treatment for the seizures, we'd use it all the time. And that's just not true. And it's true for any patient with epilepsy. So Rett syndrome is actually not very different. It doesn't really necessarily have a unique approach. We tend to think of broad spectrum medications for a lot of our patients because they may have more than one seizure. They may have seizures that we're not certain are focal or generalized to begin with. So I find that we tend to go broad spectrum a lot, including valproate, levoteracetam, clobazam. And then we may consider oxcarbazepine or leucosamide for those that we're pretty certain have focal seizures. We continue to consider the management in similar ways as we do for those individuals with epilepsy without RET. So if your first drug's not working, maximize that first. If that doesn't work, add that second one, maybe try it in monotherapy. If it doesn't work, then you're on to polytherapy. So I wouldn't consider it unique or specific to Rett syndrome. Is that how you approach it as well, David? Yeah, we try to reduce the number of medications they're on. So if we can treat their epilepsy with one medication, that would be terrific. And as you said, most patients do respond and there are those who are refractory. But for someone in my position, when I do find a patient who does have refractory epilepsy, I like to pull in an epileptologist as a colleague to help me manage that patient's seizures. I do feel comfortable generally managing you know, patients on one, two, or three medications if they're controlled. But with that decision to maybe move to VNS or move to the ketogenic diet, I try to do that in conjunction with an epileptologist. Sure, absolutely. And I think that we'll find that through our discussion for most of the organ system management that when you have a familiarity with that first drug approach, maybe even that second drug or management or maybe two together, that's great. If you can manage it and have confidence and go that far, that's fantastic. But the minute that you are uncomfortable or less familiar with polytherapy or getting into that third tier approach. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all consider looking for specialists in those particular areas with that organ system. Similar for epilepsy. Absolutely. I would agree. And so, yes, we consider just like we do with patients with epilepsy and not RET, we consider medications, we consider options that aren't necessarily medicine-based, such as the ketogenic diet or the vagal nerve stimulator. So I would agree. Referring to epilepsy surgery specialist centers for those other options outside of medicine, very appropriate for those patients with Rett syndrome who have refractory epilepsy. I'd like to move on to sleep considerations. So like epilepsy, sleep dysfunction is often experienced at high levels in our population. And I often find myself, just like with epilepsy and many of the symptoms, telling families, take heart. We know that these symptoms often do decrease over time and even in some resolve completely. But when you're talking with a family who has a two-year-old, that's not such encouraging information, right? So while that's important, you just absolutely have to dive right in and manage that symptom that is concerning to them at that time. So sleep is often one of those symptoms. There are some individuals that do not experience sleep abnormalities, which is wonderful, but it's something we should be asking about that parents may not bring up to you because it's not an external feature like epilepsy is or abnormal breathing that we'll talk about in a second. 
So sleep management, again, the idea that sometimes we look for medicines that try to treat more than one symptom. So for instance, gabapentin is an anti-seizure medicine, but it often is very sedating and can be used as a sleep medicine. Others to consider melatonin or clonidine. I forgot to mention, usually the first approach that we should be considering and discussing is just sleep hygiene. That can be a big win when you talk with families and talk with them about their environment and how you can look to improve just the environment or their sleep regimen. So I would always encourage that first. But of course, these medication options often do become part of that discussion. Then we talk about kind of those first level medicines we just mentioned, then maybe in the second tier and third tier. So some of those are the more newer medications, the Zolpidum, the Suvorexant. Those are some of the new options that, yes, we even consider within individuals with Rett syndrome when the first options I've discussed may not be strong enough or effective enough. Some of the other options for treatment may involve behaviors. I find that, and David, please let me know if you do as well, that a lot of our discussion waxing and waning over our care of the individual kind of comes back to behaviors. So it likely does affect most of our patients' behavioral concerns, but the degree, the severity can evolve over time. We often think about it being internal behavior concerns or external behavior concerns. Internal may include things like anxiety or depression or isolation type symptoms, whereas the external behaviors might be more hyperactivity or significant aggression or irritability, screaming out, disruptive behaviors. An individual can have both, and it often does wax away and change over one's life. So it's important to be familiar with options to treat most of these behaviors. And I would say that we try to mitigate the external environment, just like we do for sleep. We try to figure out, are there things that are igniting or triggering some of these behaviors that we can mitigate and reduce? We also try to think of other types of therapies that may benefit these behaviors of concern, such as music therapy, if it's available in one's area, sensory-based treatment, again, if it's available in the area. And hippotherapy, all these can greatly affect, maybe even reduce some of these behaviors of concern in the individual with Rett syndrome. We also recommend families learn how to better cope with these behaviors of concern. That can really help families with learning how to handle these very significant behaviors of concern. Beyond that, we try to manage it with medication sometimes, and that may include some of those SSRIs that we've talked about already, but there really isn't a particular shining example that we all go to. What's nice is that we then have lots of options to consider for behavioral management. We may even consider some antipsychotic therapies if needed for those external, strong, robust behaviors of concern. And you will find in your discussion and management of patients with Rett syndrome, you will have to have that conversation with some families. And they need us to be brave enough and strong enough to consider some of those antipsychotic therapies because some children do need those. And some children need polytherapy management for their behaviors if significant. Keeping in mind the natural progression is that most often these do reduce over one's life. Yeah, and actually that's a good point to let the family know that when they're going on these medications, we're not committing them to taking these for the rest of the 
child's life, but at least to get them through this hump that we're trying to, to get through. And all those medications are ones we use in our clinic as well. For sometimes for some irritability, I find that either the gabapentin, if they can tolerate it during the day, helps them with irritability and some guanfacine is another that alpha adrenergic agent can help with that as well. Absolutely. And I think most of our listeners have already picked up on, I may not have specifically said, but a lot of these are off-label and it's the typical off-label approach that we have for many of our other individuals we treat within our neurology clinics. So again, I would encourage you to extrapolate maybe from your experience that you're using for your other neurology patients too, as you'll find success within the individuals who have Rett syndrome and have those similar symptoms that you're treating in other individuals. So yes, I agree. There are multiple options for behavior just looking at what particular behavior you're trying to target and consider, hey, do they have other you know, dysfunction in other systems that maybe I can find that one drug that might treat both. So with that, I'm going to roll right into what I would consider abnormal breathing. That is also a significant feature in majority of our patients, particularly at younger ages, that most often does decrease over one's life, even resolve at some point. So that's very hopeful and very positive. However, during those younger ages, adolescents, young adults, sometimes it's pretty significant, either hyperventilating, panting, or breath holding, or as we experience with most of our families, their child has both of those abnormal breathing patterns. We unfortunately don't have a great treatment for abnormal breathing, but it can be so significant and so disruptive that parents often do ask us, is there anything we can do? Is there any treatment for that? And so absolutely, we do have medicines that we try. I just think David and I will both be able to agree and hang our heads. Man, we don't have the great one. We don't have the best treatment. But what we have found, I think at least through experience and through previous case reports or studies, to let us know that, hey, there may be some options that do work for certain individuals. So some of those that we may use for abnormal breathing are actual anti-seizure medications like topiramate or things such as acetazolamide. We often may try those for abnormal breathing. And guess what? They're anti-seizure medications that may help with seizure control as well. Other things that we just talked about with behaviors. So our SSRIs, sometimes we find that they bring benefit to the abnormal breathing and may reduce the abnormal breathing. So we love it when we use one medicine for a specific dysfunction symptom, and it may help others in this case, SSRI. So really it's a tough symptom and it's not really one that we have a great treatment for, but it's one that we can cycle through different options with families, provided that they feel it's necessary or that they're asking for it. It's not something that we often say we must treat. It's really based on the severity of the symptoms. I've even found that sometimes I'll try sertraline in a patient and I don't find it working. And if I switch it to a different SSRI like fluoxetine for some reason now, this one works better for that patient. It just goes back to what you said earlier, individualizing treatment for each patient. So that's just something I think we all do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And believe me, if we had the perfect option, we'd all use it all the time. And it doesn't exist. Not yet. 
I'm going to go ahead and go to the next organ system on our list that we were going to talk about today, which was GI disturbances. But I was wondering, David, how do you approach some of the GI disturbances in our patients with Rett syndrome? Well, I tell our patients that the same MECP2 gene that's dysfunctional in the brain in our Rett patients is also dysfunctional in the enteric nervous system of our patients. So there's a lot of gastrointestinal dysmotility. There's feeding issues probably affect like 80% of patients, constipation, 80%, chewing and swallowing, 60%, a lot of gas bloating from air swallowing, another of the respiratory features, maybe 50% have that. Lots of reflux, maybe 40% in patients, delayed gastric emptying is like 15 or so percent. We have to try, unfortunately, to use different medications for each of these conditions. For example, for the constipation, we'll use osmotic laxatives with initially if the stool is fairly soft but still just not moving we'll use a more stimulant laxative to help with that if they have gastroesophageal reflux we might use medication like famotidine and with with swallow dysfunction we commonly refer our patients either to a feeding and swallowing clinic where a speech therapist might evaluate their swallow to make sure it's safe or we may proceed with a modified barium swallow to detect if there's any silent aspiration so we want to make sure that the patient feeds in a safe manner and several patients end up requiring a g tube at some point in their life i try to tell families that this also is not something that they have to look at as something that will be present for the rest of their lives. We have some RET patients that no longer needed their G-tubes and they were removed. I think this is a really important point. And I find myself and my team finds ourselves having pretty frequent and long conversations regarding the G-tube. Rightly so. I know a lot of families really find themselves struggling to come to the decision to have a G-tube place in their child because either just being scared of it, they're not familiar with it, which you know is totally appropriate and we need to help educate them. But just with the idea that in their mind, they may feel that if their child is able to swallow safely, that's number one, I agree with you, that we need to make sure that that is occurring if there's concerns for that. But number two, they feel that if they place a G-tube, then that will take away their happiness or their joy with eating or drinking. And so I really, and my team is really, careful to make sure that we really make sure they know, listen, this is like a backup plan. This is your insurance plan. Your son or daughter may need the G-tube for extra calories, for extra fluid when they're not feeling well, or it's just a day they just don't feel like opening their mouth and eating that day, which we experience with our individuals often. For whatever reason, they just feel like not eating or drinking that day, but they still need those calories and nutrients. So often it's an insurance plan. It's a backup plan. But if their child is able to eat and drink safely, we always encourage that. We don't want to take that away. It it is not meant to suddenly take them from enjoying that birthday cake or dinners with their family, right? Like, honestly, it is something we often have to work through with families over a couple of visits, but it may be needed for multiple different reasons, medication management, giving the fluids so they're getting enough to meet their needs, the calories to meet their needs. Also for the gas distension, relieving their gas can be a great benefit for them. So there's lots of reasons that we should take time to discuss why a G2 might be needed for their family. 
And one thing our listeners may want to recognize in our rat patients, compared to some other disorders, their families of rat patients, they often know each other. They know other families in the community, and they're a good resource. I'll have one parent who can explain their experience with a G-tube to another so that they're in similar shoes and have other ways to think about moving towards G-tube if necessary. Yeah, and I would say with, particularly with the GI issues, I find that a lot of families will bring me options, right? What about this homeopathic option that I'm using? Is this safe? I've heard that it's other families are using it. It seems like it works for them. So I find that within eating, nutrients, supplements, and constipation realm, that the families have a lot of options that they have come across that works for other ones, other families, so that networking can be really important in this area, particularly. And yeah, a lot of times... Uh, what they're using at home is a great option for their son or daughter. I think we also really are very concerned and really want to make sure they're getting enough nutrients, enough of the vitamins in their diet, that it's variable enough that they are having good bone health with calcium and vitamin D options, right? So I know in our team really does focus a lot on not just are they eating a diet and are they getting enough calories? But really what makes up those calories is very important too. And so our dietitian takes a lot of time really analyzing what goes in their diet. And, and then of course, we're managing what comes out, <laughs> right? <laughs> or what isn't coming out rather, right? Again, from the whole person experience, are they getting good nutrients? And if not, that's when a consideration for that G-tube may be necessary. I'll take that mention you had about bone health as a way to pivot maybe and to talk a little bit about some orthopedic bone issues. So in terms of bone health, we really have to look out for osteopenia and osteoporosis since it's so prevalent in our rep patients. And we all try to get intermittent bone density scans, DEXA scans, because the thought is that there's a decreased bone formation instead of increased bone resorption. And so that's why we want to make sure that we're increasing that bone formation as much as we can with available calcium and vitamin D. We either do it ourselves or in collaboration with our orthopedic colleagues get lateral spine x-rays because we need to monitor, as you know, for scoliosis since it's so prevalent. It's the most common orthopedic core morbidity in, in, in Rett syndrome. It's found in about 75% of our patients. And the median age of onset is about age 11, and it's progressive for nearly all mutation types, and up to 80% have a significant scoliosis by age 16. And there's been work to show that when you can reduce the progression of scoliosis, there's obviously more capacity to walk independently or with some assistance. We reference the Cobb angle, make sure that an angle of 20 or more would be to an orthopedic surgeon, and many of those who have a 40 degree curve, let's say by even age 12, there's a likely progression by age 16. And if they get to 40 to 50 degrees, that's when many surgeons decide to operate. And there's been some good outcomes reported in our red patients from studies of those who've had scoliosis. And the other thing that we want to monitor through our orthopedic colleagues is the hip stability, especially in our non-ambulatory patients. Hips can get dislocated. Those could be quite painful. And they're very helpful to manage the patients with us. Maybe I'll ask you a question about um, how you feel patient factors influence your choice and treatment in all of these different domains we just reviewed. So I think some of the things that I think we all consider, again, just in general management of any patient is age, gender, 
and concomitant medications, right? So obviously we want to reduce options if we can. So we've talked about that today and that's really an important thing. If you're thinking about trading, you might consider other symptoms. So you're like, maybe I would choose this one typically, but because they have dual symptoms with abnormal breathing, I'm going to go with this option, right? So whenever we can overlap reasons or organ systems with one drug, that's wonderful. But it's really also considering what other medicines are on, what has not worked for them in the past, right? We're doing this, all that decision-making uh, with Rett syndrome patients as well. And so I don't think it's necessarily a unique thing, but it's still definitely necessary in individuals with Rett syndrome to consider all those options. I think as far as a management approach, most of us feel comfortable in going one deep or maybe even two deep, as we mentioned earlier for most of these organ systems. And I think the families will appreciate that means less specialists or less visits or less appointments. And I think who doesn't appreciate that? But we also need to recognize that we're not experts in all of these organ system dysfunction. And sometimes we need help as well. And we wanna make sure that we're considering the best options and the safest options for every child that we're treating or adolescent or adult with Rett syndrome. We try to manage what we can in a comfortable, confident fashion, but recognize that we have our limitations as well. And when we get to that place, and it may be different for each one of us clinicians, um, just based on experience. And so when we get to that, I find that's when we consider referring to our specialty colleagues in orthopedics, in psychiatry, in GI, for instance. We are fortunate enough at Cincinnati Children's to have a well-rounded multidisciplinary team that sees our patients when they come to see us. And we on our team include a dietitian, an OT specialist, a, a speech therapist, specialists, neurology, developmental and behavioral specialists, and social work as well. And we have a network of individuals that we routinely refer to and work with and have a good working relationship so we can really co-manage with our cardiologists, with our GI specialists. So we're able to try to reduce the redundancy of management by working with those individual specialists as well. How do you guys handle it there in Boston, David? It's variable between all of our clinics, I know. Yeah, we have a team. What we'll end up doing is we have the patients see either one or two providers on the same day, but they might just spread out their uh, clinic visits over time. Some of us are in different buildings, and so it could make it difficult otherwise. We can connect by phone or by email to discuss the patient after the visits. The specialists we refer to most often are the gastroenterologist, the nutritionist, the orthopedic surgeon, and we have an augmentative and alternative communication clinic that, that does a good job of assessing the patient's needs to see what communication strategy would work best for that individual. And then trying to work with the speech therapist at their school to get on the same page about a particular approach or even the way that they program the software to make, let's say, eye gaze communication most efficient in an individual patient. So those are all been a really tre tremendous collaborative efforts we've had with all these different specialists uh, together. Some of them have been working with this rec clinic, I think, since it formed back in 2007. So it would be great if we could all see the same patient on the same day, but that hasn't worked out. <laughs> sure. And like we're discussing, with all the clinics that are Rett syndrome-specific clinics in the U.S., 
we all organize a little bit differently and we all bring a little bit something different to the table. But I think overall, we have pretty similar approaches to care and management. It's just how you get there may be different. And I would like to just reiterate to those listening today, whether you have a RET clinic close by or not, there's just a lot of different ways that a family can receive their care. And I find that the more that you as the individual or near the family, the more that we can help you manage the individual and help their family, the better I think it will be received from the family. And they desire that too. Nobody likes to make long trips and particularly those with children who have special needs. So anything that we can do to help you with your management and whether it means phone call, whether it means email, whether it means that you would refer the family to see us as few times or as many times as they would desire, we are, I think all of us are happy to really take that on and happy to work with individuals on the community. Ultimately, we all have the same goal to just really optimize one's care of their lifetime. And you may need us involved or you may need our opinion frequently for a little while and then maybe not for a long time. And I really think that we are all open to that approach as needed as for each individual, wherever they are in their Rett syndrome features and dysfunction. We are there to step up and see them often or as little as necessary. Yeah, I end up seeing some maybe some newly diagnosed patients a little bit more frequently. And those who are stable may come once a year or once every three years. And sometimes I think patients, families find it helpful, even if there was a single visit, just to get an idea of what things do we need to look out for. And on that note, there's a couple of publications back in 2000 with some guidelines for primary care physicians to take care of patients with Rett syndrome. And I think those guidelines can be very helpful for not only primary care, but also neurologists and other subspecialists who take care of our Rett patients. Let me just ask the last thing. How often are you seeing your patients in, in the Rett clinic there in Cincinnati? Yes, I think we do have a variable approach and really we let the families drive the frequency of the visits based on their needs for their children. So there, as you mentioned, it may be more often when they're newly diagnosed in their younger years, just as a lot of these symptoms we've discussed today, and even the many more that we weren't able to discuss, right? We had to pick some high level ones, but there are many others we didn't even get to talk about today. But a lot of those symptoms are pretty significant or pretty severe at that onset around the diagnostic time in the first few years, up through adolescence, young adult, and then they start to decrease, right? So I find that the visits are more frequent in that younger age, just like you were mentioning. We have a typical approach where we see most families on an every six month basis. However, we have different clinics available for those that might need to come in more frequently. For instance, we have an epilepsy rec clinic where if really their most problematic symptom is epilepsy and seizures that are refractory or we haven't found a great management yet, we need to focus on that. We'll bring them back to our epilepsy rec clinic. We have a like a mini clinic where we just have two providers, EDBP and neurology, to really just focus on the specific organ systems that is concerning to the family without necessarily our whole team to talk about 
Rett syndrome management as a whole. And I find that's a very useful clinic for those more pointed questions or concerns at that time. So yes, we have those that come once, one and done. They just want to hear us, meet us, ask questions and see if what they're doing at home with their provider is right on target or if there's recommendations. And then we have those that, like you mentioned, maybe come once every couple of years to see about research, to see about updates of care and management. And I, so I really it's variable and it's based on what the family is needing or what we as a team really recommend based on what we're seeing in the clinic too. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Standers. I think we made it clear that management of Rett syndrome is possible, but it requires a multidisciplinary approach. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope this information has been helpful to your clinical practice. And as a reminder to earn credit for this podcast, click on the link in the show notes and be sure to check back for more episodes in this series. Additional podcasts will feature Dr. Jeffrey Newell and provide an overview of Rett syndrome and future management options. Thank you. Thank you.